Hello and welcome back to the Canadian Money Roadmap Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Neufeld. Today, I got a short little episode for you here on reviewing a new Netflix series called How to Get Rich. Some things I did like and some things that I didn't like. If you've been on Netflix recently, you've probably seen one of their featured shows is called How to Get Rich. And of course, a name like that is a little bit clickbaity. So if you haven't watched it yet, there's going to be some spoilers here. It's it's a documentary type show. So spoilers may not be the, the best term for what I'm going to talk about, but but the show is comes from a guy named Ramit Sethi, and he wrote a book a number of years ago called I Will Teach You to Get Rich. And it's a it's a pretty good beginner entry level personal finance book. He's got a great personality. like He's a real character. So there's a sense of humor to it. It's not dry or boring or anything like that. And so it's very easy to kind of latch onto his personality and get engaged in the topic. So having a Netflix series seemed like a really good strategy for someone like him because he was really engaging. And that's part of the one of the things that I did like about the series. So anyways, on this podcast today, I'm going to be talking about a few things that I liked about it and some things that I didn't like about it and whether you should watch it for yourself because it's about eight hours or I think there's eight episodes each about maybe half an hour to an hour long. There's a lot of commitment in there. So I'll maybe summarize enough of it for you to make a decision for yourself. Just in case some people don't make it all the way through this episode, I'm going to start with the things that I do like so I don't come across as just a negative person that's looking for critiques or anything like that. So some things that I really liked about this series Oh, and full disclosure, I have read his book as well. So if I'm taking some things from his book and comparing it to the show, forgive me for that. But the vast majority of concepts that he talks about on the show come from his book. So forgive me if I mentioned something that isn't actually included in the show, but is included in his book or something like that. Okay, so the first thing that I really liked is that when he was speaking with a couple, so there's about, I think it's about eight different people or couples that he works with throughout the series. And when he's working with a couple, he really focuses on communication about money for them. It seemed like many of the couples that were featured, they had a problem of ownership over their money, meaning like, oh, this is my money and this is her money and, and you know, that kind of thing. And well, she does this, but I do that. And so he really helps get to the root of the issues for these couples, helps them communicate with each other in a way that's actually constructive about money. But yeah, so many of these problems, they they stem from a lack of communication between the partners on expectations. And because they generally don't have a plan, the default behavior that they have is going back to being possessive or spending without thinking or the opposite of like penny pinching without a plan. It's like, oh, we just got to save. So if you're spending anything, it's a problem. I've fallen victim to things like that before too, like even for short-term savings things, I might have it in my own mind. It's like, oh boy, things might be a little bit tight this month or we've got more expenses coming up. But if my wife doesn't know about it or doesn't know what I'm thinking, then I could just get cranky about it when it's not her fault that I didn't communicate about it. So that's something I really liked that the the focus on money between couples starts with communication and clear communication on expectations. Secondly, a lot of the solutions or ideas presented were simple things instead of complicated strategies or scammy products or things that are unrealistic for people. So for example, the main thing that he talks about with people is the idea of a conscious spending plan. Ramit, much like myself, doesn't like budgeting in a traditional sense. It's just 
too difficult to stick with on a regular basis. And so a simplified version for him of budgeting, he calls it his conscious spending plan. So the way that you do that is you figure out your net income. So that's your take-home pay. And then you can itemize your monthly fixed costs. So that includes your rent or mortgage, your utilities, insurance, car payment or transportation, debt payments, groceries, clothes, phone subscriptions. And in his plan, he says, add 15% for stuff you forgot because that always happens. And for his guide here for a conscious spending plan, that section of fixed costs should only take up about 50 to 60% of your take-home pay. For most people, this is the biggest issue because here in Canada in particular, mortgages can be much, much more than that for some people. Car payments can get out of hand. We have the most expensive phone plans on the planet, so this can get really out of hand pretty quickly. From there, he recommends investing. 10% of take-home pay. I think there's more nuance there, but that, that honestly, it's probably a reasonable rule of thumb to use. And then the next section is uh, on short-term savings goals for vacations, gifts, long-term emergency funds, home renovations, and that would be 5 to 10% of take-home. Then once all of that is added up, based on his guidelines, there should be about 20 to 35% left over for guilt-free spending. So what would you do if you had money for guilt-free spending? You know, go out for more meals, all sorts of entertainment, you can fly business class, buy the clothes you really want, pay to have your car detailed, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. Because the theory is, with the other things that you've done, you've already taken care of all of the things that you want to do and you should do, and whatever is left over, you can spend guilt-free. The challenge is actually having enough on the top line to make it down to the bottom before all of your expenses kind of eat it up. So, I really like this strategy. The conscious spending plan idea is is, is pretty cool, so I, I like that. One critique is that the plan is very self-centered, in my opinion, and it doesn't leave any space for giving to others. And I think a, a firm belief of mine is that giving to others should be part of one's rich life. A personal challenge, maybe, for me, for me to you as a listener. If you consciously make a decision to give to someone else from what you have, you will start to feel better about your financial situation. I've talked about that in a podcast before. I won't get into it too much here, but I think charitable giving is an important part of building one's rich life. That's how he describes it. I've often called it living richly because living richly doesn't have the same connotation as getting rich. So anyways, moving on to the last thing that I, I did really like about the series is that, yeah, part of that conscious spending idea, but encouraging people to not be afraid to spend money. I know that may sound counterintuitive here, but a lot of generic financial advice comes down to cutting out anything that's nice or anything that you'd actually want. You know, it's like the classic avocado toast argument. It's like, well, these millennials, if they would stop buying avocado toast, they'd actually be able to retire. It's like, well, probably not. Like, sure, like spending those little things could be problematic at a certain scale. But if you're taking care of all the other things in your life, spend the money. Like, who cares? Or give it away or do whatever you want with it. But that is his idea of what he calls their rich life. So the clickbaity title of how to get rich, it's not what he means. It's defining for oneself what is valuable in your life. And spending your money and time and effort on those things allows you to live a rich life. Rich like a dessert can be rich, you know what I mean? Not piles of money rich. I've had the cool opportunity to chat with a few clients recently about what they're going to do with with all their money. They've been really good savers for a long time, and their long-term projections show them 
having more money than they would reasonably be able to spend in their lifetime. So like, what do you want to do with it? <laughs> you know, so living richly is, is a concept that I have really latched on personally. And so I, I kind of like this approach through the series. Okay. Some things that I didn't like about the series. One, kind of the, the clickbait title of, of getting rich implies for the, the person that's going to log on and, and watch the series. They're probably looking for specifics on how to not just get from point A to point B. They're trying to get from D to Z, for lack of a better analogy. In my opinion, I don't think Ramit actually helped many of the guests get rich or even live richly, however you want to define it. I saw it more like a documentary on people doing anti-rich things. Like, here's a person that spends all her money, or here's a guy that gambled on the stock market, and here's a person that makes incredibly poor decisions. And then there'd be a little, like, sidebar. It'd be like, hey, how about you just don't do those things? It's like, oh, yeah, okay, great. And so it, was, it wasn't really as productive necessarily as many engagements perhaps that I've had with clients or things that you can do on an ongoing basis and it's television, you know? So there is a little bit more of that, that idea of you watching somebody else who's worse off than you. It's like kind of like darkly entertaining, I guess. So like, for example, one guy, he got progressively worse like throughout the show. And then in the last scene with him, he quit his job, but throughout the engagement, Ramit had this like, Gordon Ramsay Hell's Kitchen type of scene where they're sitting down at the dinner table and guys going through all of his bills that he hasn't paid. And Ramit's like, you got to pay that bill. And it's like, stop doing this. And he's like ripping up stuff and throwing things around. And it was supposed to be this, this big dramatic scene, but like that was the only practical thing that he did. And so it was like, he spent so much money, he couldn't stop spending, and then he quit his job to become a social media influencer, but Ramit told him to pay his outstanding bills, so it was like this big win. It's like, okay, well, this guy's so far beyond winning at this point that it's tough to take anything too seriously. So kind of on that same note, he has this idea of like, don't focus on the small things, focus on like the big like thirty, fifty thousand $50,000 decisions. You know, which which is good in concept of like not buying a house before you can afford it, negotiating on your salary, all these kind of things. But like in his book, he's got a whole chapter about bank fees. It's like, okay, it's like spend a hundred pages talking about how to save four bucks a month. Like that's the opposite of what you talked about before of living your rich life. Like I don't know anybody who quote unquote has got rich by avoiding an overdraft fee here and there. So he kind of talks out of both sides of his mouth a little bit on focusing on the big things. And then almost entirely focusing on the small things. So along with that is cookie cutter advice, meaning everybody should follow everything that he thinks about money. He's got two huge bugaboos that that are his hills to die on. One of them is bank fees. Another one is, is using financial advisors and how everybody should be investing their own money and anyone who charges you money to invest your money stealing from you. It's like, okay, slow down a little bit. First, there's a lot of terrible financial advisors out there and ones that can also be terrible and charge too much. And there's also people that are transparent and invest for people in ways that are evidence-based and might align exactly with what the client wants. And anyways, I won't go too far into that one, but it can't be assumed that everyone who's a financial advisor is just stealing from you. Not everybody should be a DIY investor. Lots of people can. Many of you listening can, but it kind of comes down to the three T's 
of time, temperament, and talent. So if you have the time to do it, if you have the temperament to not get yourself in trouble, and you have the talent or knowledge to, to be able to know what to do, it's like, yeah, you can maybe be a DIY investor. But the person in the show that he was recommending should fire their financial advisor immediately. It's like literally the last person on earth that I would encourage to DIY her investments. In my opinion, he could have had that conversation with literally any other guest on the show. It actually would have carried some weight, but she, this woman's an absolute train wreck and needed as much paid help from others as possible to like get out of her own way. She could have paid someone 5% of her assets just to restrict her access to money. And she would have been so much better off. <laughs> like it was so ridiculous. So no, not everybody needs a financial advisor to invest their money, but lots of people do and lots of people would benefit from it. And the goal of a financial advisor is not to beat the S&P 500. It's to do exactly what Ramit is doing with helping people make better decisions with their money. And in some cases, that's investing in a way that makes sense and a way that helps keep people invested over a long period of time. Whatever their goal may be, lots of people find that is worth paying for. I'm not going to defend people that offer services that aren't worth paying for, but this is kind of cookie cutter advice that did not apply to this person whatsoever. Okay. Next thing that I didn't really like, he has this tagline that he uses in his book and throughout the show, I think is incredibly misleading and gives people the wrong impression. His goal is to give people the confidence to spend extravagantly on the things you love and cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. It's like, oh, okay, that's that's a nice editorial little piece there. It's like, but the problem is it's not possible. It's not possible. <laughs> right? So think about the things in your life that you're spending money on, especially for someone that struggles with money. What are the things you don't love? They're probably your top expenses, right? They're probably taxes, like property taxes, income tax, sales tax insurance, home insurance, vehicle insurance, life insurance, disability insurance, groceries, car payments. Like the things that I love, I would love to go to France every year. I'd love to have a vacation property up at a, a lake in the woods. It's like those things are they're way more expensive than the things that I can actually cut, right? Because those things, those top expenses, I can't cut taxes. I can't cut my insurance, groceries. I got two kids at home. I like cooking. We go out once in a while and we do takeout once in a while, but I like cooking, but like even a super expensive grocery trip, like if you're buying like the high end version of things versus the no name brand or whatever, super expensive grocery trip versus a bare bones version of the same items, save you like a hundred bucks. Like that doesn't turn into anything that allows me to spend extravagantly on the things I love because I cut costs, quote unquote, mercilessly on the things I don't like, give it a rest. So yeah, I like the concept. I really like the concept, but just get rid of extravagantly and mercilessly, like take the teeth out of the statement, spend on the things you love and cut costs on the things you don't. It's like, okay. So it's kind of a middle ground approach that is actually realistic. That doesn't sell books or keep viewers interested in a Netflix series. I guess, I guess that's why that he's making millions on telling people how to get rich and I'm not, but Anyways, I think that's really misleading and person that just sees that or latches onto the tagline because it's catchy will encourage people to spend more money at a default because like, well, you know, I saved some $4 on my bank fees, so now I can go buy a new car. Like, mm, you got to be careful, <laughs> okay? I'm totally fine with people spending money as long as they've done something like Ramit's conscious spending plan 
or automated a lot of good habits at the at the get go. Okay, another thing I didn't like. I'm almost done here, <laughs> but after the show is aired, he's featured some of these people on his podcast, and the two people that I've seen so far that he's featured, they're so much worse off than before. It's like somehow the show has had a negative effect on them. Like, I'm not sure why he's doing this because it looks so terrible. For example, that woman that, that he was chastising for having a financial advisor invest her money for her. She sold her house. Oh, this is another thing that Ramit loves, which I like and don't like. He's a big proponent of renting instead of buying, like only buying a house when, when you have the financial means to do it. I'm like, yes, I'm a big believer in that, that homeownership has some sort of glorified status in North America for sure. But he takes it to the next level. And when she sold her house and is renting another one in Beverly Hills, he's like, oh, that's so good. Like, good for you. You're just renting now. Like, okay, well, I think she should have crunched her numbers a little bit more thoroughly before we decide whether that's a good outcome or not. But she sold her house for four million bucks, paid out the mortgage and whatever. And this woman doesn't have an income. She lives off child support. And she said that she spent five hundred thousand dollars on clothes in the first year after she sold her house. It's like paying a financial advisor is not this woman's biggest problem. And she thinks that she wants to run a business, which she already tried to, and lost millions of dollars on that. Yes, COVID came into play and she had some bad luck there, but this is not a person that should be in charge of managing millions of dollars. Also in this follow-up podcast, she says that she bought three BMWs, one for herself and two for her kids, whatever, so that she could get a better price. She didn't get a better price. This guy saw her coming a mile away. She bought three BMWs and it's like, no, the investment advisor was not her problem. It's like, she has no concept of what is enough and what is reasonable and saving or whatever. So if if an advisor in her case could actually hold on to some of that money and generate some ongoing revenue for her beyond just her child support, yeah, that that's probably going to be necessary for a person like that. Now, the other guy that I mentioned before, Frank, he's still spending all of his money. So again, this is in the follow-up afterwards. He's still spending all of his money and believe it or not, he can't turn his online influencer business into regular income. He's like, boy, it's, it's great some months and terrible other months. It's like, yeah, because the only reason you could do that before that was your side gig. The only thing that was keeping him afloat was the fact that he had a good job with benefits. He was like a school counselor or something. He has a master's degree. It's like, this guy's not dumb. He just needed to come to terms with the concept of living within your means. And he hasn't done any of that. And it's like, well, well, yeah, Ramit gave me all these tools. It's like, no, he didn't. This was a joke. This guy's going to be in really big trouble. So yeah, changing one's mindset about money is a good start. It's like, yeah, it gave me some good things to think about. Like, okay, but executing on the details is the only thing that really matters. So another guy, he got a new job and he increased his income. It's like, awesome, that's great. But what are you going to do differently? Because you could just be broke at a different level if you don't actually make any meaningful changes with an increase in salary. If you're still not going to talk to your partner about money, if you're still going to spend every dollar that you make, who cares how much money you make, right? The extra salary needs to be that margin for you to save and invest and plan for the future and give to others and so on and so forth. Those are the things that will allow you to live richly, not just get a new job that pays more. So anyways, maybe I'll stop ranting here, but I would say that it's probably worth a watch as a series just to kind of wrap things up. It's worth a watch to see the relationship side of money and how building your own 
conscious spending plan that can help take some of that unspoken pressure off of money between two people. I think there's that risk. I kind of alluded to this before, but there's there's a risk of shows like this showing the extreme ends of the spectrum and and use the viewer saying, wow, good thing I'm not that bad with my money. I must be doing great because the show has to be interesting enough for people to keep watching. But, you know, the, the people who can really live their rich life or live richly, as I call it, master the details that have the most impact and then they execute them consistently, right? The idea of excellence is a habit. It's not a point in time. So this is a big reason why I always advocate for automating all of your good habits or the good things to do, like saving, investing, debt repayment, and even charitable giving, because everybody's got a discipline problem. But so you have to get that out of your way. You have to get your inability to consistently make good decisions out of the way and your priorities will end up taking care of themselves. So the show is interesting if, if you just like to engage with content around personal finance and see what other people are doing. It's not going to teach you anything earth shattering. It definitely will not teach you how to get rich. But if you're in a couple, I think the most interesting part of that show is like what I mentioned is the relationship side of money and the communication and setting expectations with your spouse. But uh, if you've seen this show, let me know if I was completely off base or if you had other takeaways from this. I don't think it's going to do any harm to anybody out there, but that was my little summary of how to get rich. And uh, thanks so much for listening to this episode. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Canadian Money Roadmap Podcast. Any rates of return or investments discussed are historical or hypothetical and are intended to be used for educational purposes only. You should always consult with your financial, legal, and tax advisors before making changes to your financial plan. Evan Neufeld is a certified financial planner and registered investment fund advisor. Mutual funds and ETFs are provided by Sterling Mutuals, Inc.